Wow, was that a man's voice? Hi and hello, watch fans. Welcome to episode 36 of Fratello on Air. I'm your host, Rob Nuds, calling in from Dresden. Today I have two beautiful men on the line. James Thompson, Black Badger, is back in the building, joining us from Sweden. And today we have Anders Brandt of Arkenaut joining us from Copenhagen. So let's start with Anders. Hi, buddy. How are you doing? Hi. How are you? <laughs> I am very well. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 yeah, trying not to laugh. Uh, we've been on the line already for a few minutes, uh, just trying to warm up for the show, just, you know, you know chewing the fat, uh, spitting some ideas back and forth between one another. James has been on top form already today. Um, our microphones have been assaulted from every direction possible, and his sound machine has been getting a great workout. Hi, James. How are you doing, buddy? Look. You didn't tell me you were going to introduce Anders first, start talking to him first. So I'm just, I'm done with this. He's, he's very sensitive, you know, for like a burly, masculine kind of guy, you know. Fat. The word you're looking for is fat. That's okay. He, he, fat. Okay. He's Canadian. That's, that's He's Canadian. Yeah. Tragically, tragically Canadian. Ah, oh, come on now. Nobody's tragically Canadian. We love the Canadians on Fratello. We love all peoples on Fratello, but the Canadians have got a special place in our heart. Hey, come on, maple syrup. Hockey, friendliness, so friendly, in fact, that they chased you out of the country. That's what Americans make fun of Canadians for most, is that we say please and thank you all the time. Like, that's the most of a dig we're going to get. I'll, I'll accept that happily. <laughs> yeah, that never really made sense to me. Like, um, you know, I, I grew up in Britain, so, you know, we're, we're internationally renowned as being uh, polite and rather well-to-do and, and so on and so forth. And uh, I always viewed the Canadians' uh, friendliness um, to, to be like a huge source of national pride and other people would deride it somewhat go, these guys, <laughs> they're just too nice. And it's like, huh? It, it so, will completely sur- um, surprises my wife, who of course is from here in Sweden. We'll be walking down the street in, in Vancouver and like she'll sneeze and somebody like from across the street will yell out, Gesundheit! <laughs> you see, that's what the world needs. The world needs yeah. a little bit more of that kind of community spirit. So... Yeah, the revolution uh, begins here. The revolution begins here. Um, Canada for the win. Um, fantastic. Um, talking of another country, a glorious country, another red and white flagged country. Yeah. By the way, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a big big vexillologist. Um, we've got Anders, who's in Denmark. Yep, Denmark. Come on, the capital of Europe, <laughs> the greatest place on earth, the happiest people in in maybe the universe. Uh, yeah wow uh, yeah yeah that's it that's why strong statement yeah so anders are you uh, are you born and bred uh copenhagen no. copenhagener no no i'm uh, i'm a country boy i come from a, a little town in jutland uh, where I grew up and I moved to Copenhagen in my adult life so i've not always been a, a a town boy, a city boy. How do you find it? How do you like the city? Uh, Small town girl living in a lonely world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's 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 all right, but uh, but I like the country still. Uh, I think I'm going to move uh, to the country someday. Have a small cottage or something and live there for the rest of my life. So it's not wow. it's go, going to be. Uh, for the entire of my life, uh, staying here in Copenhagen. 
Interesting. I've only visited Copenhagen a couple of times. Yep. Um, I thought it was a very beautiful city, but I have not spent anywhere near enough time there to get a good feel for it. But um, I, I too am a bit of a country boy, yeah. um, so I I, uh, I feel feel where you're coming from there, James. James, of course, a uh, couple of hillbillies. <laughs> All right, city slicker. Uh, tell us about your life up in Gothenburg. What's it like there? The details of my life are quite inconsequential. Um. Boy, I thought that was a really passable uh, Dr. Evil impression. Yeah, it was a bit disturbing, actually. <laughs> Thanks, to be frank. The white cat hair was probably over the top. Um, no, Gothenburg, it's the it's the second biggest city in Sweden, but it, I mean, it absolutely doesn't feel like it. It feels quite small. Um, what's really infuriating is that it's a city that has two names. So in English, Gothenburg, and in Swedish, Jotteboy. And Every single person I know in North America, including my own lovely parents, have not figured out the proper way to say it yet. My dad still calls it Gottberg. My, my mom calls it some kind of bastardization of the two of the names. I think it's easier if we just start calling it like Chicago or something. Just make up a name for it. Yeah, Chicago might cause some confusion. I believe there is a rather small conurbation in North America with the same name, but we could just call it Gberg. That's that's pretty cool. Gberg's like. a, little, a little gangster. Yeah, it is. I'm trying to I'm trying to spice up Sweden's international reputation because you know uh, there's not enough gangster activity in Sweden. Uh, oh, I'm <laughs> oh, believe me, there is. <laughs> All right. Well, they must be very good at it then because they're keeping it on the down low. That's for sure. Guys, tell me this, okay? We got we got two two guys uh, from very different parts of the world working together now on a fascinating brand, Arkanaut. Um, we're not going to get into the nitty gritty of who's working for who and who the supreme overlord is, because we all know that James is going to claim that title. <laughs> uh, so it's a waste waste of everyone's breath. Winning, what I want to <laughs> hey, come on, man, come on, come on! Right, what I want to know in the spirit of collaboration, and let's uh, let's get this story from Anders. How did you two meet? Well, the the first time we met was uh, at Salon QP in 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 London. Um, where uh, I was going just to, yeah, as a watch nerd, uh, and then I saw saw, saw this crazy, uh, this crazy Canadian guy uh, just uh, waving around his uh, crazy uh, glow in the dark rings, and I was like, I've heard about him. Let's go talk to him. And we were like, we should do something together. And then, like a month and a half afterwards, we uh, came to. Gberg and uh, drank a lot of beers and James couldn't stand up for five days afterwards. Impressive. And, yeah. and how long did it take you to stand up afterwards? Um, I'm always standing up even when I'm sleeping and even when I'm drunk. So not a problem for me because I'm Danish, but, but a problem for James because he's Canadian. Do not ever try and keep up with Danish guys that are 10 years younger than you. <laughs> Okay, that's you, interesting. You will end up crying. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Obviously, like my my country folk have got a great reputation for being um, um, incorrigible pissheads, and uh, I've never really met a nation that could uh, could outdrink a Brit. But the Danes, I, I fear the Danes. Anybody that I know from England, when you go out to the pubs, they can drink like crazy, but like they want you to get really drunk and have a great time and celebrate. People from Denmark use alcohol to punish outsiders. Right, right. Okay, this is interesting. Like I want you to get drunk and fall down the stairs and hurt yourself. 
I wonder if it's a Nordic thing. I once went drinking with a Finnish watchmaker who, um, who he, he could drink. Oh, well, I say he could drink. Let me put it this way. He could put an awful lot of alcohol inside his body. It didn't react particularly well with said body. Mm. Uh, and he became like increasingly <laughs> agitated and violent as the night went on. And I, I told him. It was Cory Gutelain, wasn't it? <laughs> It wasn't Kari, no, but uh, I wouldn't mess with Kari either, that's for sure. Um, I've I seen, seen him out jogging around Baselworld in the morning while I was out running as well, uh, and I, I knew from uh, from stories on the street that he'd been out till about four in the morning the, the night before that, and he looked fit as a fiddle, so yeah, I wouldn't be messing with him, that's for sure. But this guy, um, we were talking about um, uh, our, you know, far-flung heritage and he, he was telling me that he was descended from vikings and I, I told him that my surname nuds has its danish origins as well apparently is a corruption of canute and then he decided i was a viking also and to test this he smashed a half pint glass against my forehead which has never happened before to me i, I had no idea what it was about i just didn't countenance the possibility of this so i i, I turned into it he was just an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I got this conclusion like later. Like he smashed this glass, which it was complete fluke that it didn't hurt me or cut me or injure me in any way. I just turned my head towards it as he swung his his big bear paw at my forehead. This glass just crushed, dropped to the ground. Luckily, he didn't stab it into my face. And then he, he decided I was a Viking. He gave me this enormous hug, which nearly broke my spine. And then about two hours later, he decided that we would uh, celebrate our shared heritage by having a headbutting contest, at which point I decided this guy is just a dick and I need to get out of here <laughs> because like, I never sustained so much damage to my forehead in one night. Honestly, crazy, crazy. Yeah, that's a proper good Viking evening. Like most of the Viking dudes that I know here, it's all, you know, it's all Gothenburg is super hipster. There's so much indigo denim and mustache wax and stuff going around. <laughs> idea of a guy assaulting you in a bar and then giving you a hug that's a proper yeah. rowdy viking i mean I, I can't say that i didn't enjoy it i was terrified um but those I two things within me um yeah we should go to gothenburg and i tell you what this guy this finnish guy he, he um he wasn't wearing mustache wax but he was secreting a kind of fluid that i'm sure could have been bottled and sold as such so if we could capture him somehow we could probably farm him um, for the hipsters of Gothenburg. Uh, we can, we can milk him. We can milk him. We can milk him, yeah. I know the Anders to do the milking. Yeah, I'm good uh, at it. <laughs> I'm good at it, he says. Yeah. I'm good at milking myself, so, yeah. All right, man. Great. Uh, this is this has taken a bizarre turn. We're only about 10 minutes into this show and uh, good grief. We have come up with a new business model. It's so important. In fact, I'm half considering ending this show early and just dashing out to corral as many Finnish watchmakers as possible for the milking of our milking expert, Anders Brandt. But um, in the meantime, because I'm sure there's Finns going anywhere. There it is. Well, there it is. What a time to drop that. <laughs> what a cacophony of idiocy we have brought upon the listeners of Fratello today. Oh, Look, Sorry about that. So you met James. You met James in Salon QP. That is actually where I met James for the first time as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, he made a lot of friends there. But James, tell me this. When Anders came up to you for that very first time and he said, hey, buddy, we should do something together. Surely you must have heard that like a million times over. Surely everybody wanted to work with you. Um, in those days, of course, before they got to know you, yeah, um, that's a big problem. Um, in the in the early days, it, it was absolutely a case of that, and I and, and I say that fully realizing how pretentious that sounds. 
That being said, it was purely because people were using me as a conduit to try and get access to Macs and MBNF. Uh, it was a bit like, you know, like having like the hottest girl in school be your sister. Everybody's really nice to you. Every idiot was coming up to me with some kind of like the year that we actually met at, at QP. Um, I think that was the year that I was exhibiting, right, Anders? Yeah, right. Okay. Yep. Put, put your beer down, for God's sake. So I was kind of stuck in my booth. I couldn't get away anywhere. And I had people that would come in and do the equivalent of, you know, give me their business card. Hi, I'm the CEO of Rolex, you know, kind of thing. And talk to me for friggin' three hours. And I'm thinking like, oh, this is spectacular. There's going to be some kind of massive, massive collaboration. You know, we'll talk after the show. Great. And then we talk after the show and it's like, yeah, so uh, my brother is opening up a pizzeria and uh, do you want to help with the menu design? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, how much does it cost to exhibit at Salon QP? And I gave you four <laughs> hours of my talking time because I'm thinking it's going to be some kind of big, crazy, adventurous collab. I don't want to say which brand the guy was with, but he was a dick. And, and it became, you know, like completely wasted time. People were just trying to get access to my network of things. So uh, three questions. I have three questions on the back of this. Okay, firstly, um, I guess it wasn't Rolex because you used him as a fantastical example. Secondly, pizza menus? No, not exactly. But like people always come to me with these weird extra projects. Um, Right, okay. Never, hey, we would like you to design the most fantastic kick-ass watch ever. It's, oh, you're a watch designer. That's really cool. Hey, do you want to help? paint my dad's garage or just these totally unrelated things. All right. All right. All right. So how did, how did Anders uh, pitch himself to you in a way that differentiated him from the, the crowd of uh, fanboys? Well, it wasn't even really the, the, the watches or the brand or anything in the beginning, because the brand when we first spoke was completely different from what Arcanaut is now. Um, I, I was just really impressed with these three guys that were just sort of young entrepreneurial very well spoken and and just just fun to sit there and chat with. You know, we had kind of a similar kind of idiotic sense of humor, as you might be getting a flavor of now. Um, and it was just really fun because it just felt very different because I had just come out of several quite high end collaborations back to back, MBNF and then two Sarpaneva ones, really sort of quite soon thereafter. So everything was very high end in my world. Every project that I was doing was $50,000, you know, watch, uh, $40,000 table clock, $20,000 watch. It, it, it was a lot. And it almost started to feel a little inauthentic to me because I don't, I don't come from that world. So when these guys came in and just started talking, you know, we're just we're three young entrepreneurial guys. We have this watch brand they were putting together and, you know, Hey, it could be fun. Let's chat on something. Um, it was just a really nice conversation. And then when we met, uh, whenever it was a month or so later, when they came to Gothenburg, as we said, we got just knee walking drunk, um, which to be honest, to all young designers out there, that is a more important skill than sketching. <laughs> We've touched on James's inability to sketch in the past. And uh, I never, I never thought that this would, uh, this would have a corollary. In For once, I'm actually being uh, semi serious about this social situations. Like I, I don't have a resume. 
I don't have a CV. I don't have a portfolio. I've never had to email my personal, you know, specs to a company and, you know, for your consideration, please, sir. I met Sarpaneva in the men's room at Salon QP. That is the best place to meet him, by the way. That is absolutely the best place. Because we were all like nine free glasses of wine, you know, in, and that we were standing at the urinals, uh, a whole bunch of people having a wee. And then uh, this guy walks in and just, are you the one they call the badger? And like us, us like four guys all standing along the urinal, kind of turn and look at each other. And I'm like, uh, I think he's talking to me. I think I've seen this movie before you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but just being able to be sociable and to be able to present yourself outside of a traditional business format is very, very, very important. I have some friends that are spectacular sketch artists, conceptual artists, but they're almost like lab rats. They need to be sitting at their Mac. They need to be in their controlled little environment. And if you ask them to stand up in front of a conference table full of people, they kind of Clark Kent a little bit. They kind of retreat into their shell and they kind of mumble a little bit. So they're like the opposite of Clark Kent then. They're Superman at the computer and then they're Clark Kent like at the... Well played. Well played. Absolutely. Right, right, right. Inverse Clark Kent syndrome. Uh, terrifying. Um, so Anders, tell me, how did you how did you get to that point? How did you find yourself in Salon QP or at Salon QP, in it, at it, wherever it was? It was great. I miss it. Uh, how did you get through the door? I get some money. Okay. Okay. So you paid money. You paid real human money. Amazing. Okay. That's good to know. And how did you and your team arrive at that point? What had gone into creating the concept of Arcanaut before that? Well, um, as all good things, it started with some alcohol and some drinking. And uh, me and uh, Simon, the co-founder of the brand, uh, we met in the night uh, in a bar in Copenhagen where he was kind of bragging uh, and showing around his uh, Breitling uh, Navitimer world he just bought. And uh, he was kind of passing it around. And uh, it got to me and I was like, well, I can't see what the fuck uh, the time is. And uh, and it it, it was at at the time I was not a a watch uh, aficionado. I, I didn't collect watches, anything like that. But I was a design nerd. I've always been a design nerd. And I was like, this is so overcomplicated a design. I can't see what the time is. And that kind of spiraled into several beers into the early morning hours and and us just discussing and, and debating about watch design and Danish design and Scandinavian design and the tenets of, of Scandinavian design, which is really functionalism in a way. And from that, we kind of just said, we, we should start a watch brand together where we try to make something that's truly Nordic, a design language and, uh, and really uh, do something that's really Scandinavian, uh, a truly Scandinavian brand. And when did that conversation take place? How many years ago were we talking oh, about? That's, that's four years ago, I think. Uh, and then we actually started a, a completely different brand that was called Goldman Brand, which we totally failed at uh, but learned a lot from that and from that we created the Arcanaut and then uh, that was uh, around the same time that we met uh, with James at Salon QP yeah I remember when when we were first chatting uh, as soon as you 
I think you showed me a rendering of the watch or showed me a sketch and it said Goldman Brandt. I just thought it just, it, it sounded like a law firm or like an accounting. Yeah. Firm. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it sounded like uh, one of these uh, Wall Street firms uh, from, uh, you, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street or something like that. And it wasn't authentic in a way. I think really the the, the, the thing we came to was uh, it wasn't us in a way. And uh, Arcanaut is entirely us. It's not us looking at other brands doing something or tying our brand to a gimmick because you, as a new brand owner, you get caught up in that. A lot of, I see a lot of new brands get getting caught up in, in like uh, they want to do too much with their brand they want to tie it up to too many features too many gimmicks and what i'm always thinking about is that does this stand the test of time like you can maybe make make some money of making chinese made watches uh, on some kind of gimmick in five years but uh, 40 years from now it's uh, i don't think it will stand the test of time so you're in this for the long haul that's the plan yeah, I, I kind of like uh, just before uh, my, me and James uh, talked a bit, and the, and I I had uh, and I said I had this dream like uh, you know in the end of uh, one of the Batman movies, uh, uh, Michael Caine is sitting and drinking a Fernet Branca, and he sees Bruce Wayne across the table, uh, and he's just uh, nodding to him. And I have like, like this dream that the reason why I find passion in creating a watch brand is really in 40 years, I want to sit at a table someplace, think, drink a Fernet Branca, and then just see one of my early customers still wearing his watch. That's where I right. find the passion. And okay, I saw this going in a completely different direction because I believe that Bruce Wayne is sitting across the table from Anne Hathaway or Catwoman. Moment. I thought you were going to be in Bruce Wayne's shoes, but you're Michael Caine in the yeah, scenario. I, I, I'm Michael Caine and just nodding at one of my early customers and drinking my Fender Branca and going away. Okay, okay. I like that. I like that vision. So you sort of see, like, a, you see right from the very beginning, you see the completed arc of your effort. You see uh, this realized future coming to life before your eyes and uh, that is satisfaction to you that's like the goal just to sort of know that you did something that really <laughs> impacted somebody else's life for a long period of time yeah and not just that because uh, it's it's about creating something that's timeless because what watch brains new watch brains today uh, do you really think have a design that can last 40 years uh, well, that's a good it, question let's actually ask that question to to james james which watch brand? You're talking to the wrong guy on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's why it's funny. I thought this is this is going to be this is going to be good. Tell us, go to hell. Which brand? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think there, there's almost some kind of an arms race going on, and I think I'm very much part of it. Where the design, the actual physical form, isn't maybe as adventurous as people are doing, say, with materials and coatings and all these insane complications and stuff. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually I, really quite pleased to hear Anders say that because that shows a real holistic, very Nordic um, way of approaching your own brand, that it's not one of these sort of shitty flash in the pan, we want to make a bunch of money and get out really quick. Um, you're actually almost thinking of what result do you want to have 
what final result do you want to have? And then kind of figuring out how to work through the steps backwards to achieve that. Um, my question really is we have uh, a huge amount of watchmaking history behind us already, and yet it's still quite a young um, phenomenon. If we just sort of say wristwatches have existed for you know a hundred years, let's just let's just say arbitrarily speaking, um, it feels like they've been around for thousands upon thousands of years, um, and it feels like the the norms to which so many brands today subscribe. Uh, are sacrosanct and established before the dawn of humanity. Um, Not many brands really push the envelope of different case shapes or how watches are worn. For example, you see very few large rectangular watches. Um, Square watches have their fans, but not so many. You don't see watches designed to be worn on the inside of the wrist or further up the arm on the forearm, perhaps. You know, we we talk about the integration of smart technology and wearables and how essential that might become in the future and whether or not watchmaking needs to get ahead of that curve to, to survive. I don't know if it does. I don't think that's really necessary to talk about that now. But it's interesting that you see, Anders, in 40 years' time, um, the form of watches to have remained largely unchanged. Do you think that there is any fear at all that uh, something radical is going to come along and upend the apple cart and destroy your fantasy? Uh, no, because I think mechanical watches is uh, is uh, it, it, it has been tested so many times uh, now that and it has shown uh, that it can last throughout times. So. Uh, well, we, we already have the smartwatch. Uh, we already have a big producer like Apple making smartwatches. And what I see people who are really into watches and also want a smartwatch, they're just wearing the smartwatch on, on the right hand and their Rolex on the, the left hand, right? So it's, and that really shows me that it's two completely different things. The, 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 the mechanical watch, the, the wristwatch is, is the exact opposite of the smartwatch. It's cool because it's mechanical. It's not cool because it's just a wristwatch and uh, and now you have a wristwatch that can call your girlfriend or something like that. I 100% agree with you that they're completely different things and that the purchase motivators behind both are entirely different, completely alien from one another. Um, it's a small living thing, I think, a mechanical wristwatch. I mean, that- right. And it's an artistic object. It's an object of beauty yeah. and of refinement. And, you know, smartwatches are purely functional. But it is undeniable that we're talking about a territorial war more than an ideological one here. Mm. And I, I thought many years ago, and I've been, I've been very wrong in the past with my long-winded predictions of what's going to happen with the watchmaking industry. Uh, so don't take this <laughs> for gospel. But I was, I was convinced that we would see a return to pocket watches, mechanical pocket watches, because the item, the item itself, the, the mechanical watch, that will always persist in one form or another. And with the advent or the second advent of real fine gentleman's tailoring, uh, that swept the UK and there's uh, catching fire in Europe as well. I thought perhaps maybe we might see some pocket watches. Is that something you <laughs> would ever countenance doing, Anders? <laughs> no, I, maybe. I, I don't know. But I, I, I think actually that the reason why mechanical wristwatches are, are, are so popular, and I think it's also going to be even more popular in the future because the global economy is booming. So even though we have a crisis right now, 
uh, overall, in 10 years' times, people uh, in other countries and in our own countries will be richer. And the, the way for us to show that we are rich is to have or show our identity is to have something like a wristwatch. Uh, and it's, it's, a very, it's almost a very sophisticated way of talking about the weather. So I can have a watch on and uh, another watch nerd can see me and we can talk about something. And the pocket watch doesn't really fulfill that because you have it in your pocket. There's, it's not a conversation piece anymore. It's not something you wear. If you are really rich, you can wear a Richard Mille, for example, instead uh, of having to uh, take your Ferrari into the restaurant. So it's it's really a way to 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 show status, but more and more it, it it's becoming a way of showing your identity and and what you identify with in design language and and in in a brand. So I see more and more new brands coming up, uh, mechanical watch brands, and in time, I I think it will be more and more popular actually. Well, and what gets to be interesting actually is how how far into the future. <clears throat> You want to sort of speculate this because, I mean, we're obviously talking a fairly sizable amount of time in the future. But I'm I'm, I'm sitting here listening to this and thinking, round watch, twenty four hour clock, all that kind of thing. Earth rotates once in twenty four hours. How are you going to tell time when you're not currently standing on Earth? What if you're on the six month, year long, whatever it is, journey to Mars? How are you going to tell time? Would it be in the same manifestation? Would it be linear as compared to being a round format? On Mars, you have 25 hours, I think. So it would be a 25 hours watch. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends where you end up. Yeah, you're right, James. It depends where we drop this pin in the uh, the map of the future. Because, I mean, um, it's not exactly a 24-hour rotation on Earth, of course. You know, we, we have, like, uh, slight discrepancies that we have to compensate for. And the further away we get from the norm that we've established, the the more creative we're going to have to be with how we tell the time. I guess there will always be, like, a, you know, UTC will become a universe, coordinated universe time. I think it was Lewis Hamilton being interviewed, and they were talking about jet lag. And how do you how do you acclimatize to all these different time zones as a Formula One driver? Because you're in Japan today, and you're in Abu Dhabi next week. Then you're in Brazil the week after that. Then you're in Singapore. How how do you not just have a complete breakdown? And he's saying you only stay on your home time zone. So he's on London time, whether he's in Singapore, whether he's in Japan, wherever in the world you are. So you might be having breakfast at the equivalent of three o'clock in the morning and going to bed at two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, quite, quite an interesting phenomenon. And it's almost like the, the flexibility of time and how sort of elastic it is simply based on the, the person perceiving it. I've got, I've got a challenge for you. Okay. Cause we've, we've stumbled across this mm. watchmaking is in need of new complications um, because, well, actually just because that's exactly why mechanical watchmaking exists a lot of the time. So here's one for you. So we, what I want is I want a dual time watch. I want Arkanaut to make it, and I want it to be the world's first. I don't actually, I don't know. Maybe Constantine Chacon's already done this, but the, maybe the world first or second watch that has an MMT display. So this is what I'm calling Mars Mean Time. So I want one <laughs> dial to run at twenty five a twenty five hour day. Yeah, he's got that the, the uh, Mars timer, right? 
It's, does that exist? That's, yeah. that's the big triangular it, it, one. It's I've hella cool, one. too. I, right. Seriously. Okay. Forget it. Constantine beat us to it. That's cool. <laughs> let's go further. Okay. Let's, you know, let's say Mars, baby. Mars is old hat. Like Elon Musk will be like skipping around on Mars in a tutu in the next eight years' time or whatever. Like nobody cares anymore. It's, it's done. It's over. It's, let's, let's reach beyond Mars. Let's go for, hmm. I don't want to do Jupiter time because it's a devastatingly terrifying gas giant. Let's go beyond Jupiter. Let's go beyond Saturn. Let's stick it right in your anus. Oh. <laughs> what? Where's, where's my sad trombone noise again here? I can see that joke coming over the horizon on a horse barreling in here. Uh, yeah, I wasn't really aiming for the joke. Okay, my favorite planet in the solar system is Neptune. That's the last one to oh, do with. How long is the day on Neptune? It's, Anyone know how long? Oh, uh, long. I, I just randomly, yeah, yeah. like a week ago, that to the equivalent of if you would have started your watch the day Neptune was discovered in 18-whatever, it would still be the same day. Well, I, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid that according to Google, who I've just inquired, we are not correct. It is not longer. It is 16 hours and yeah. six minutes. So that means that Neptune spins like a – Hella Maybe it's a year I'm thinking of. How long is, yes. ne- is a Neptunian year? That's 165 years. So an orbital period of Neptune is 165 years, but its day is actually super fast. Uranus's day is 17 hours and 14 minutes. Saturn's day is 10 hours and 42 minutes. Jupiter's is 9 hours and 56 minutes. So goodness knows what's going on with Earth. Why we're taking so long languidly rolling around on our axis. But here's the thing. With a day of 16 hours and 6 minutes... You can genuinely convert that. You can do that with a watch. That's easy. You know, if we were talking like, if we were doing a year, if we were doing 165 years on the watch dial, that would be useless because nobody has lived to 165 years that I'm aware of. So yeah, there you go. Um, This is the NMT, um, the Arcanaut NMT, Neptune Mean Time. And uh, it will be useful for you keeping track of all your future relatives on Neptune. I. I think that the interesting thing here. I thought the coffee watch didn't sell well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the interesting thing here is not just to create something that 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 can measure the the Neptune time, but it's it's to create something that's not overcomplicated and and really still has has function because you need to both. Be able to view the the Earth time and Neptune time at the same time. Um, I don't know, man. It's it's like two dials inside one dial. I don't know, James. This is what I hired you for. <laughs> <laughs> you hired me for the foot rubs. <laughs> wow. It's interesting, actually. The like. Quite literally, the, the very first watch, watch project that I ever worked on um, in my in my last year of design school, when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for my for my thesis. Um, long long story short, I had a couple contacts with with NASA, um, in particular people that were uh, architects on the International Space Station, and one of the projects that we were discussing was how to update the Omega Speedmaster, which is, of course, the watch, you know, the moon watch, and what would be the equivalent, because at this time, 
you know, Mars missions was sort of being talked about a lot more. Um, what, what would be different to be the equivalent of a Mars watch? And would it, are you, are you going to wear a watch the same way? Do you need to wear it on your wrist? Does that sort of piece of real estate on your wrist, will that always be allocated to time telling? And is it round or is it linear and all these sorts of really fun, quite, quite out there concepts, but even just, you know, the sort of five minutes we've been talking about this here, it's, it's getting more and more interesting. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's quite a fun project, but it's definitely a pub conversation. Yeah. I think that we could probably come up with something pretty amusing. Um, you know what I do like, and you tell me if you agree here, um, Erverk released their uh, UR100 model, right? Uh, and it's uh, got the tri- typical uh, triple orbital um, hour display in the middle of the dial. But the cool thing about it is they have these two scales um, running in the uh, upper left corner and the upper right corner of the dial. And these scales are indicated by the uh, hour markers when they're out of commission and traveling between um, the 60-minute mark and the zero minute mark to get back to functionality and they show completely like random totally useless info like uh, how far the earth has traveled through space or something or how many kilometers it's rotated on its axis during the 20 minutes that have elapsed it's just totally legit like this is this is um mathematically sound um scientifically sensible but entirely useless but if we could come up with like a complication that showed something like maybe a bit more relevant to like the next step in space exploration that would be amusing more than really useful. There used to be a company. I remember I met them at Basel years and years ago. I cannot for the life of me remember the name. They were a Finnish company. Okay. um, And they had watches that had a functioning G-force measurer. I can't think of the right word built into them. So it, it was this massive, you know, like an espresso machine on your wrist. The actual part that told the time was like 1% of the physical form. And the rest of it was, was a functioning G-force indicator. And when you bought the watch, you got a little test card from their, their pilot version of like the Stig, who would put on your watch and just go haul ass around in some stunt plane. And he would sort of write down, oh, and it did this many Gs at this time and this maneuver, blah, blah. And I just thought it was such a, with all due respect, such a wonderfully stupid product. Because, you know, like, how fast can I get this desk going in front of me right here? You know, like, who cares? Who cares if your watch can go down to 20 miles under the sea because you're long dead and the shark that ate you is probably dead at that depth. But the quest, like you're seeing out of it, the quest for the unobtainable man, I hope we keep doing that because that is so much more fun. Who cares what time it is? Realistically, who gives a shit? You know, it's oh, it's maybe about kind of one o'clock-ish. Who cares? Yeah, well, uh, that's a good sentiment to take forward. I think um, sometimes the industry takes itself way, way, way too seriously and there are spaces within it, of course, for that kind of seriousness and that kind of prestige and the maintenance of the luxury we've become accustomed to. But yeah being a bit more irreverent and a bit more creative and thinking outside the box and bringing a smile to people's faces. I mean, Constantine's come into this um, conversation already with the Mars watch um, that he totally like reached into the future and plucked out of my brain right now, cheeky guy. Um, but I mean, is there a watch that's been released in the last 10 years that makes people laugh and smile as much as the uh, Joker? 
or yeah, any of the wristband like, collection. Yeah. You know, what I mean, that's cool. And that, yeah. people look at that. People look at that and they get something. So they get an emotional reaction, and that's that's necessary. Yeah, that's the key. I actually had a, a client who signed up for the waiting list for uh, for our next watch, uh, who put it very very nicely. He said. He he's retired now. He had all the business watches, uh, all, all the Omegas, all the Rolexes, and now he just wants to buy things that makes him smile. That that's that's the only thing. So, uh, and I think really to have that as a goal to make people smile, to make people enjoy wearing your watch, that's the key, really. And I think I mean the more Anderson and I talk about this, and we're trying to sort of flesh out the brand and really figure out who we are and what we have to say with this, we keep constantly coming back to the, the, the sources of inspiration. I mean, uh, Anders was here in the, in the mighty badger den for two or three days solid, I think a while ago. And I don't think we actually talked about watches for more than 20 minutes where we were getting all this inspiration from was weird avant-garde filmmakers like Lars von Trier or, insane chefs who are doing all these crazy gastro experimental things and all this that's the kind of pioneering spirit of whatever alchemy that i think we're really trying to put forward with with arcanaut is not we don't want to be just a luxury brand we don't want people to look look at the watch and go shit that guy's got a lot of money we want it to say something and what we're really trying to say is is what is that is that we're we're trying to do something different and we would love you to come along for the ride if it doesn't appeal to you that's fine you know we're not trying to make some kind of broad spectrum everyone's going to love it piece but but really finding those little kernels of inspiration coming from unconventional places i think is something that we both sort of mentioned many many times and i think anders if you want to mention the uh Michelin starred restaurant kind of kind of things that we keep sort of coming back to when we're chatting. Yeah, so 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 like the the thing with Las Pontria and uh, all these Michelin star restaurants, like do you know uh, Noma, the the restaurant in Denmark who uh, was con- consequently been been the the best restaurant in the world, and the the mm-hmm. thing they set out to do was really create a. Uh, a new cuisine style, uh, new Scandinavian cuisine style from the bottom up, and that's really difficult when you're competing against Italian food and uh, uh, French food that that has been around for for centuries, right? And they like that movement became some of the best restaurants in the world, and and really, I, my whole thinking about Arkenaut is really some of the f- same things making like rules in the design for ourselves like uh, to create this understated yet distinct design language that really lasts throughout the ages where we can do some of the same things that, as they have done in like like uh, with the the new nordic cuisine like uh, create something new that's still um, that's still uh, it's distinct and understated but at the same time it's it's recognizable in a way yeah, that's the goal, right? That's the goal yeah. for a new brand to have that character that um, stands out, but is yeah. also digestible at the same time. It's a lot harder yeah. to do than people think it is, but I think you're on, I think you're on a very good way. 
Well, and it's not really often that people kind of fly the flag for the benefits of being a small unknown brand. Because if, I mean, imagine if, uh, oh, you know, I don't know, Audemars Piguet or Breitling or Rolex turned around and tried to do this, it just wouldn't seem sincere. It would seem like, oh, okay, well, they're just trying to carve out more of a market niche in the 18 to 40 year old market. But with this, we're, we're really just trying to do something different and unique. And I don't, it, it's so hard to say it without sounding really self-grandiosing. But I mean, like Anders was saying about Michelin-starred restaurants and stuff, you know, there's French cuisine and Italian cuisine and all this that's been spectacular for hundreds of years. The dishes that we most equate with super high-end French cuisine um, isn't what the kings ate. The stuff that we would go into a restaurant and spend 200 euros on if you go back 200 years is the shit that the peasants ate is the crap because the Duke or the King got all the good stuff and you were left with like the ass of a horse and like a piece of a monkey. That was what you had. It sounds delicious. It really does. <laughs> and that from a creative standpoint is so much more challenging and rewarding. Yeah. I don't really expect you're going to see a lot of gold and diamonds coming out on Arcanaut watches, but if you can make people fall in love with steel, with rubber. Fuck, it happens in architecture. It happens in car design. Why the hell should watches be any different? What does rose gold add to the party? It's pretty, sure, but, mm, you know. Uh, yeah, I think you've already got a great a great foundation design-wise. I mean, there's a couple of things that really, really stand out as, uh, as totally novel. Um, the log setup is my favorite thing about the watch. I'm also a big fan of the crown. Um, <laughs> I really do love the sort of ghost logo on the dial at three o'clock. Just awesome, awesome stuff on the arc one. Um, what I want to know guys, look, it's been great chatting to you. Um, we're going to wrap this one up now because we don't want to go on too long for the, for the Fratello readers that only have a short commute, bless them. Uh, those that are lucky enough to be commuting at the moment, that's for sure. What I want to do is firstly, Anders, can you tell us where we can find Arcanaut, where we can see it, where we can get our hands on the pieces, maybe not right now because of the restrictions and whatnot, but in the future, and how can we buy one? Yeah, so uh, Arcanaut is going to be a brand where you uh, we, we don't have anything on stock, so you need to sign up for a waiting list if you want uh, a piece uh, uh, any of our future models. Uh, you can do that by going to our website, the best way to keep updated is to go to our uh, IG account, uh, Instagram account, and follow us there at uh, uh, Arcanaut uh, underscore watches, uh, or go to our website, arcanaut.dk. Okay, so that's arcanaut.dk. That's yeah. Denmark. So yes, anybody exactly. Anybody uh, outside of the US might be unaccustomed to these uh, regional specializations we have. Uh, but yeah. Don't put .com, it's .dk, so go check it out. Uh, you can see a lot of nice pictures of the Arc 1 on there with black dial and white dial, and uh, get in touch if you're interested in getting your hands on one yourself. And, of course, the forthcoming Arc 2, which we're going to start to tease on very soon. Took the words right out of my mouth, James. Uh, we have the Arc 2 on the horizon, and is there anything, JT, that you can tell us about that right now? Anything at all? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're, we're really, we're really trying to keep it consistent. We want to have an evolution, not revolution kind of design language with this, because otherwise we'll just be like a bag of cats all over the place. 
The art two is going to be insanely legible. And that's going to be achieved through what we're doing with the loom on it and also what we're not doing with the loom. So negative space, very architecturally, the negative space is every bit as important as the bright loom, for want of a better term. And the dial is actually going to be, I don't know how much sort of detail Anders wants me to go into here. Um, We've actually created a a stone composite that we're calling dark matter. Apostrophe A is so good. Dark, it actually sounds French, dark matter. And, and the dial are going to be made from that. And the nice thing about that is that it's a it's a natural stone slate composite. Um, won't incriminate myself too much, but the stone we used, I actually kicked off of the fountain um, in front of the building where I live because it was the right color. And then uh, we actually fed these broken chunks of slate through a industrial espresso grinder, as you do. As you do. Reconstitute, reconstituted the dials from that. So from a distance, it's very flat gray. But when you get up to it, you're going to see this fantastic, almost kind of crystalline structure of all the bits within. The nice thing about that is that it just sucks up all the light. It's almost like that bent to black without being stupid. Oh, this sounds pretty, pretty special and very pretty as well. And it's, and it's, you know, it's still got its feet in the ground. It's not gold. It's not bent to black. It's, it's rock. But it's what we're doing with those honesty of materials ways of thinking. I think that's really important with this. Wow, wow, wow! You know what? We we're gonna we're gonna line up another podcast in the future. We'll get we'll get some uh, serious geology on the go. Um, I'm gonna come out to Gothenburg and we're gonna crush some weird rocks that we find around the place and see what we can make of them. <laughs> and then we're gonna break glasses on your forehead. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's done before. You never know. We could we could probably grind up some limestone up there as well. It's thick enough, that's for sure. Um, right, guys, I really, really, really appreciate both of you stopping by to have a chat with us. Um, Anders, it was great to talk. Um, James, it was tolerable as usual. Um, you know, we'll get a beer <laughs> together sometime. <laughs> Take the edge off, try and relax. Uh, guys, thank you. Such I know, I know, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a shame I'm the host. I can get away with it. Um, okay. We'll be back in touch with both of you soon. This was a lot of fun. We will do it again. Uh, Everybody that tuned in, thank you for listening. Take it easy. Stay safe. We'll speak to you soon. I'm not an asshole. Come on. You're a complete asshole. (laughs) Your mom was right.